Shall we pray together this morning? Father God, we thank you so much for your word. And we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to breathe through your word and that you would open our hearts to hear what you want to say to us this morning. Amen. It's been a great week for me work-wise. It's one of those weeks where when somebody at church says to you that good church question of, how's your week been? This is a week where I can say with all honesty and complete genuineness, it's been a great week. You see, I'm a teacher, it's been half term. Now, the thing about half term is this, that I like to use half term to kick back, relax, uh, de-stress from lots of young people. And the way I tend to do that is by watching action films, by reading loads of thrillers. The only problem with that is that I do that quite a lot. And so actually I don't then tend to leave much time for God. And so God's been challenging me and he's been saying, well, actually I'd like you to stop watching the action films. I'd like you to stop reading those thrillers and to give me more time. Well, I'm really proud to say that this half term I've watched no action films. Um, I'm feeling quite good about myself. Um, I have read far few thrillers than I would normally do. In fact, it's only been one or two. Now, I know God told me not to do any, any of that, but, you know, one or two thrillers, well, that's okay, isn't it? And I wonder what God might be saying to you this morning. What might he have been speaking to you about over the past few weeks? Um, maybe it's to do with giving up being in control. And God's been saying to you, actually, I want you to hand over control of your life to me. And as you're thinking about that, you're thinking, well, there are a few areas of my life, God, that I'm willing to give to you. But frankly, there are one or two that at the moment I'm going to keep hold of, thank you very much. But God, I've given you this many. That's okay, isn't it? Or maybe it's to do with Sabbath. And God has been challenging you to take a whole day off to spend with family with him, to have time to yourself. But you've looked through your schedule and you've said, well, to be honest, I can only really give a few hours. But I'm making an effort, so that's okay, isn't it? Or maybe it's to do with forgiveness, that actually you're willing to go so far with somebody, but to actually go and speak to them, to tell them you've forgiven them, well, I've forgiven them in my heart, so that's okay, isn't it? Or maybe it's to do with possessions, or status, or promotion, or a bigger salary. Or maybe it's to do with giving. That actually we hear what God says to us, and we go so far, and we do obey what he says. And we think, I've done most of it, that's okay, isn't it? Well, when we come to our passage, what we find is that Saul has been asked to do something by God. Saul has been told by God to go and to kill the Amalekite people. Now, before we go any further, these opening verses, I think, require a little bit of explanation. Because, frankly, this is a hard command for us to get our heads around. Why is God asking Saul to go and kill off the entirety of the Amalekite people? Well, the Amalekites are descended from Esau. Esau is Isaac's son, one of the patriarchs, and he has a brother called Jacob. Esau, as the firstborn, in Genesis 25, he 
sells his status as firstborn. He sells the promises and blessings of God that are to him to his younger brother because he wants some food. So Esau rebels against what God desires for him by doing that. And the Amalekites then after, generation after generation, are a people who are at war with those who are descended from Jacob, who are the people of Israel. And we read at the start of this chapter that there is a reminder of what the Amalekites did to Israel when they came out of Egypt. The Israelites have limped out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery, only just escaping Pharaoh's army. And the Amalekites take this opportunity to come out and to attack the people of Israel. And God says at that point, that's enough. What you have done there, I'm going to bring judgment upon you and you are going to be wiped out. He then reiterates that message in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And he says this in verse 17. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. Now, hundreds of years later, Saul, as king of Israel, is charged by God to carry out this judgment. But in the intervening time, from God saying this is what he's going to do, to God actually carrying it out, there has been a considerable amount of time for the Amalekites to return to God, to a God they know, but a God they have chosen to rebel against. But why kill all of them? What, what, what is God commanding here? Surely this is an overreaction. Well, what we see is that actually God knows that the Amalekites are never going to change. They are a people whose heart is entirely set on rebellion against God and anger and vengeance on Israel. Saul doesn't kill off all the Amalekites. And we find a mere 15 chapters later in 1 Samuel chapter 30, the Amalekites have regrouped. And they are now raiding Israelite towns, burning them to the ground, taking the occupants captive. Fast forward 900 years into the book of Esther, we find someone called Haman. Haman is described as an Agagite. In other words, he is a descendant of the Amalek king, Agag. And Haman's mission is to exterminate the Jewish people. His plan is only thwarted by Queen Esther. So God judges Amalek. He gives them time to repent. They refuse to do so and so orders them to be killed in the knowledge that they will never change. This is still a shocking story for us to get our heads around. But before I move on, let's consider that for us, it is a reminder that each one of us faces God's judgment for what we do wrong. But the beauty of the gospel message is that God, in his son Jesus, has taken that judgment for us so that we do not have to die. 
and that God in his mercy gives us time to repent and return to him. But let's also remember that there is a challenge for us to share that message of salvation and hope with those around us so that those who do not yet know Jesus can come to him and receive that gift of salvation and mercy. So let's return to the story and what Saul is doing. Well, Saul starts quite well in verses 4 and 5. He gathers a large army together. He's got 210,000 people. He sets a trap. Then he sends message to the Kenites who are living with the Amalekites. Saul here is showing character and honor to this people group because the Kenites actually helped Israel as they came out of the promised land. We read that in Exodus chapter 18. And Saul says to them, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to attack. Get out the way, which they do. And Saul then in verse 7 does what the Lord commands. He goes and he attacks Amalek and drives them all the way down, southwest out of the promised land, right down to the border of Egypt. But in verse 8 we read that the king, Agag, is kept alive. In verse 9, we read that the best of the sheep and the cattle are spared and not killed off as God has asked. What we read is that everything that was good was spared, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. So why is it that Saul does this? What is the reason for his partial obedience? Well, I think the rest of the passage gives us an insight into why. Because it gives us an insight into the man that Saul actually was. And we see in verse 12 that Saul is a man who is very proud. Having left the battlefield, he returns home, but has enough time to stop off and build a large monument to himself. He keeps Agag alive, takes him home to his court, where most likely Saul is thinking, Agag's going to be a great trophy. Anybody that comes to visit me, they're going to see Agag. They're going to remember what a great thing I've done. Saul is also spineless because in verse 13, when Samuel comes to Saul, Saul says, behold what I have done for the Lord. But then when Samuel tells him about the sheep and the cows, Saul turns around and goes, well, it was the soldiers. They did that, not me. He's proud. He's spineless. He's also delusional because Saul is convinced that he has done what God has asked him to do, which leads to the very comical verse 14 where Samuel is listening to Saul giving the excuses and he basically just goes, stop, listen, Sheep bleating, cows mooing, we have a problem, Saul. But even then, Saul doesn't admit to what he's done wrong. Verse 20, he is still convinced that he has done what God has asked him to do. I think one of the most sobering things here is that it is clear from verses 22 to 23 that Saul doesn't understand, actually, what type of relationship God wants with him. Because Saul says, but I've brought these flocks back so that we can sacrifice them to God. Interestingly, he says to Samuel, to your God. 
And Samuel goes, you just don't get it, do you? God doesn't want sacrifice. He doesn't want the external trappings of religion. God doesn't want you just to try and do that to say you're sorry. What God wants is obedience in the first place. What God wants is your heart. He wants your heart to be right before him, Saul. And I think the final thing that we learn about why Saul does this is that he's actually a man who is deeply insecure. In verse 24, we see that he says, well, I I gave in to the soldiers because it's what they wanted to do. And in verse 30, he turns to Samuel and he says, look, Samuel, would you come back with me and honor me in front of the elders, in front of the important people of Israel? And he grabs a hold of Samuel's robe, which in the culture of the time is a sign of desperate pleading. It's like the last ditch thing that you do to show the person that you really want them to do this. So what's God's reaction to Saul's partial obedience? Does God kind of bring out the chart and go, well, you've done this, tick. You've done this, tick. This area is a bit weak. You didn't do that, but overall I'll give you a B plus, 70%. Well done. God's reaction is immediate and it's unequivocal. And we read in verse 10 that what God thinks of what Saul has done is not partial obedience at all. It's simply total disobedience. God says to Samuel, Saul has turned away from me. Saul has rejected me. Saul has rejected the word I have given to him. And I am now rejecting him as king. This is not a little slip up by Saul. This is not a little 70% B plus. This is a complete fail. This is total disobedience. And from that day on, Saul's days as king are numbered. What Saul sees as partial obedience, God views as total disobedience. Which brings us back to my half term. And I can be as proud as I like that I haven't watched any action films. I can be as proud as I like that I haven't read as many thrillers as I did in the past, but the fact remains that I have read some. And so I'm simply deluding myself if I go to God and go, hey, look what I've done. Because actually what I view as partial obedience is total disobedience. And with the challenges that God is bringing to each of us, and we know what they are in our own hearts, if our response to God is one of partial obedience and we think that we're doing enough, Actually, God's challenge for us this morning is that partial obedience is simply total disobedience. But what's the key to the change? Because that's not where the story ends. Well, I think all of us are called to examine our heart as we read about Saul, as we read about the failings that he had in his character For us to examine ourselves and to think, well, actually, are we deluding ourselves? Are you a bit like me? (laughs) Or are we perhaps a bit 
too proud to do what God is asking of us because we recognize that actually we might have to eat a bit of humble pie. Or is there an element of insecurity because we're going to have to maybe displease people. We're going to have to make those tough decisions in order to follow what God has asked of us to do. Have we misunderstood that actually relationship with God isn't just external? It's not about doing the right thing, coming back and saying sorry when we get it wrong. It's about our heart. And where is our heart towards God? And as I finish, the key is this, that Saul is rejected by God because his wrong heart attitude leads to his wrong actions. We see in 1 Samuel 13, the first of Saul's mistakes, he offers a sacrifice that he has no right to offer. Only Samuel the priest can offer that sacrifice. And what Samuel says to him when he comes and admonishes Saul is, God has chosen a man after his own heart. God is interested in our hearts above all else and that they are right before him. So let us be a people who are known as those who obey God fully. Friends, let us be people who will commit to total obedience to God in all that he is asking of us. But the change is not in our own strength. The change is not down to us trying harder. The change is down to us coming to God and asking him for the beauty of his Holy Spirit to work in us to effect that change. So as I pray to close, I'm going to pray for three things. I'm going to pray that God will gently show us the areas of our lives where we are partially obeying. I'm going to ask God to gently show us those areas of our heart and our character that we need to bring to him to ask him to change. And I'm going to pray for the Holy Spirit to come to fill us, to effect that change within us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess to you that there are areas of our lives where we obey in part. But yet we know that what you desire is total obedience to you. Would you show us those areas where we are doing that, that we might ask for your forgiveness now? Would you show us the areas of our heart and our character that we should bring to you to ask for you to change? And would you fill us now with your spirit afresh so that by your spirit we would have the strength and the power of the most high God to be changed? And we pray this in your precious son's name, Jesus. Amen.